Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. If y'all will stand with us, we're going to sing together. Um, and uh, as you may have seen on the slides, uh, today's uh, service is kind of titled um, A Better Anchor. And so as I was thinking through these songs we're about to sing, uh, it just kind of struck me how great this song is for, for that topic and just the fact that the whole reason that we meet here today is because of God's strength and his faithfulness to us. Um, so let's just join together and lift those, uh, those things up and, and worship our God for that. Let's sing together. Oh 
Take a seat. One of the things we do uh, usually at this point in the service is spend a little time in prayer and confession. We come as Christians confessing that God is great, worshiping Him, being in awe of how awesome God is, but also uh, coming, being honest about who we are, that we have fallen far short of God, of His holiness, of His righteousness. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is to be honest about the reality in the world. So pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are so great. Lord, we also confess that we have fallen far short of your greatness, of your love, of the glory that you designed us to live within. Father, we leave things undone that we know that we should do, and we often do the things that we know that we shouldn't. And Father, we confess that to you. In Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we continue to worship you in awe and in fear and reverence. For not only your holiness and your righteousness, but for your grace and your forgiveness. That you're the God that we can call on when we have stumbled into a pit. So Lord, help us to continue to sing to you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. sing a song together. It's called From the Depths of Woe. And it comes from that passage that Dave just read. Um, I just want to say right off the bat, there, there are some older words uh, here. But I think the, the joy of that is to remind ourselves that uh, our God is a faithful God and he's been faithful to those who came before us and he will be faithful to us. Um, so let's just sing these words together. Um, talking about God's strength and his ability to pull us out of the depths. Thee. 
place of surrender Lord you meet me here in my darkest hour and you stir my heart with your love forever I am changed by mercy forever my heart is
trumpet sound for his coming one day the skies with his glories will shine Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, that you are strong to sustain us, God, and to make us more like you. Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to lean solely on you, God, and nothing else. pray that you will continue to tear away the, the idols and the things that we Look to for hope that are not you, God. Lord, help us to uh, open your word now. God, to find hope in it, in your, your words to us, God, and the faithfulness that you've shown to your people. And through your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. morning. Y'all hear me okay? Still feels a little hot. Dave, maybe you could turn me down a little bit. I'd rather talk louder than, than be injured by the uh, speaker. So. Um, what I'd like to do before we get into our sermon this morning, we're, we're in Hebrews. We're continuing a series in Hebrews called A Better Savior. Uh, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to recognize our veterans. We've got Veterans Day coming up. And uh, we have a, a good number of veterans in this congregation. So if you wouldn't mind if you would be so bold as to stand up and let us recognize you. If you're a veteran, will you stand up, please? Everyone, come on. That's half the church. Come on. Here we go. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate your service. And uh, I'd also like to share a prayer at this time, too, and just as a, as a body that we would remember those uh, that survived the shooting a year ago, November 5th. Uh, at Fort Hood, and also for those uh, that didn't, for their families, uh, that we would remember them today. So pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for those that have given us an example of your love. And John, you said that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. Lord, we thank you for veterans. We thank you for first responders. We thank you for people that give of themselves and show us what love looks like and point us to you. Lord, we thank you uh, for those families, Lord, that have been affected by the November 5th shooting directly, those that lost loved ones, those that uh, were there and still struggle uh, with the pain of that day. Father, we pray for healing for them. We pray for your comfort. And Lord, we pray that, that all of us, no matter what sort of terrible things that we live through, Lord, that you'd help us to remember that you are the rock that gives us security. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Well, we are continuing, as I said, the series in Hebrews. We've called it A Better Savior. And what we've seen in the series so far is this author is looking back at the Old Testament and helping us to see, kind of shaping uh, a, a theology for us of the Old Testament, helping us to see all of these saviors, all of these shadows, all of these types, all these pictures that pointed ahead to Jesus. 
all good things in the Old Testament, but the author here is calling us to trust in Jesus himself, not to fall short and just trust in the stuff of Jesus, not to fall short and just trust in being a part of the people of Jesus, right? Just coming and listening, but to, as he says, unite ourselves with the people of God by faith. And so we have to see Jesus as the ultimate to all these things that we've been seeing before in the Old Testament. This week, he's going to ground us in the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, all promises that God made in the Old Testament, and that those promises are stable anchors for our souls. We're calling, we're calling it this week a better anchor. The idea is that, that we struggle, that we're in this rocky life, we're in, we're in like a boat that's just being bounced around in a storm, and that's what life is like for everyone. Just like it was in the first century, when this book was first written, it's the same way now, right? Our, our life may have improved in a lot of ways, you know, there may be iPhones now, but life is still difficult, right? Even with an iPhone, we still struggle just like people struggled in the first century. And so we need this just like they needed it. We have uh, instability in our life. We go through ways, we go through difficulties, and we need to know where can we find some security? What, what is the anchor that's going to hold us in, in place? What's going to give us stability in this life? And he's pushing us to see that it's the promise of God, namely Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at this, picking up a few verses from last week. We're going to start in uh, verse, where is it, verse 10 from last week, kind of picking up the tail end of what we saw last week in these warnings that we can... We can be a part of the people of God, but not really know Him, right? You can, you can walk in these doors, you can be a part of a church, you can see it as kind of a club, but not really have any faith in Jesus Himself. And the author was warning them to make sure that you are clinging to Jesus by faith as your only hope of repentance in this world. So he picks up in verse 10, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Did I say we're in chapter 6? We're in chapter 6. I don't know if I ever said that. But anyway, <laughs> chapter 6, verse 10. It's in your bulletin too, so you know where we are. Chapter 6, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This is a theme in Hebrews, that you would have this hope until the end, that you would hold on, you'd have this assurance, and that you would continue to be in faith. It wouldn't just be like a one-time thing in your life and then you walk away from Jesus, but that you would cling to him your whole life. Verse 12 says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now he's going to look back and we'll see this theme. He's going to look back that there were people in the past before Jesus that trusted in God by faith, that patiently waited for God to fulfill those promises. He says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God is a God who says he will bless us. He will save us. He will give us good things. Verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's that theme. We who have fled for refuge. That, that's all of us. Right? It, all of us, if we're dealing with reality, we are looking for refuge. We're looking for some kind of help 
in this world. And he's saying for all of us who are fleeing for refuge, who are looking for some help in this world, that we might have this hope, this strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope set before us. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's referencing the temple, the Holy of Holies. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Next week, I keep promising you, we're going we're to get into more details on Melchizedek, right? Here he's saying he's a priest forever. He's not a temporary priest. He's not a, a, just a, a you know, dime a dozen priest like the Levitical priests were, but he's this forever priest like Melchizedek was. We'll unpack a little more who Melchizedek is next week. Uh, but for now, we know that he is the priest forever who's gone before us into the holy place, behind the curtain of prayer. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us this morning. Lord, I pray that, um, that we wouldn't be distracted by all the burdens that we carry in this morning, but that you would uh, lift the veil enough so that our eyes could see you, that our ears could hear you, that our hearts would be open to your goodness, that you want to make and keep promises to us, Father. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I thought about this analogy of an anchor, which was a very common analogy in the first century, um, very common idea, right? An anchor, the big heavy thing you throw over the side of the boat, and it stabilizes the boat, right? That's, that's what an anchor is. I have to explain this because uh, this is an army town, so some of you don't even know what a boat is, right? Um, but a boat is this thing you go out in the water, and sometimes it can rock around, and you throw an anchor out, and it stabilizes the boat. How many of you, just for a survey sake here, how many of you have ever been in a boat? Anyone here? Okay, quite a number of you. Very good. All right. You've got broad, a broad experience base. I was just teasing you, <laughs> Army people. Really, just teasing. But uh, many of you have been in a boat. How many of you have been in a boat in a storm? How about that? Okay, not as many of you, right? It, it's kind of scary. It's already a little weird to be in a boat, just the normal rocking, right? How many of you get sick in boats when they rock? Yeah. Uh, again, which is why you're in the Army, right? But, uh, but sometimes it makes you feel a little funny, right? You're, the ground is moving b- below you. You feel unstable. And an anchor is the thing that, that stabilizes that boat, that holds it in place so it won't drift, so it won't get knocked around. Well, when I was a kid, before my parents divorced, we actually had a boat. Um, when you stay together, you have more money for those kinds of things. So we had a, a boat when I was a little kid. And uh, so my earliest memories of family time was three years old, four years old, five years old, uh, us together as a family in this boat. It was a 25-foot sailboat. We used to take it out on Lake Belton, and they would take it in races and stuff like that. And we'd go out and spend the night on it. It was kind of like a camper. It had this cabin down inside, which would be like a small camper, you know, with a little miniature kitchen and a little fold-out a bench that became a bed, you know, we could all sleep in there and stuff. And, and so, you know, sometimes in your childhood, the, the emotional things that you went through are the things you remember quite clearly. And so those times when I thought we were going to die, I remember most of those. Th- those are clear in my mind. And so when that boat was rocking around, I can, I can remember those. Even though I was only like four years old, I can remember very vividly what that felt like. And, and when it was stormy... And when it was a little dangerous, they would send me and my sister down below. We were the younger ones. My brother, who was a teenager at the time, would stay up top with the adults, you know, and try to wrestle the sail down and the rigging and whatever it is they did. I don't know. I never saw it. But, you know, but they would try to deal with it above, and we would be sent down into the bottom into the safer part of the boat. 
And, and as, a, as a chubby little four-year-old, which I know you can't believe it, I was, I was quite chubby at the time, you know, I had these short little arms, and I would extend my little arms to the sides of, of the walkway in the middle of the boat. And I would kind of hold the bench on one side and maybe the wall of the boat on the other side. And in my little four-year-old brain, I thought I could stabilize the boat. I thought if I just held on tight enough, I could be like this little four-year-old superhero and kind of hold the boat together. And that's what I would do. That's what I would do to try to keep us alive. And apparently it worked because I'm here today, right? Um, but really, it, we know, we know now, I, I am sad to say, really, I, I didn't have any power whatsoever over the boat, did I? I mean, I was, I was just a little kid. I mean, I was just a drop compared to this big, stormy lake around us, right? I had no strength to overcome this 25-foot boat. I, I had no control. The circumstances were beyond me. And, and I think the author to the Hebrews is telling us that we need to look beyond ourselves when difficulty comes, right? We have this temptation to be like I was as a little four-year-old and think, oh, I can, just, I can just hold it all together, right? I can fix my life. If I just do this and this, I can, I can fix everything. I can bring it back together. And the author is saying we have to look outside of ourselves. We have an anchor for our, for our souls, and it's not us. He doesn't say the anchor for our souls is our own soul. Don't, don't look inside. He's saying look out to Jesus. Look back to the promises that God has made. And that is what is going to anchor us in difficult times. And so that's what he's going to be telling us here. Last week, when we were looking at those difficult passages in, in the transition from 5 to 6, uh, I laid out a few verses to remind you that Jesus is something uh, that you can rest in, right? That he's this bedrock. We, we looked at Philippians 1.6. We looked at uh, Romans 8.37, Matthew 7.24. Um, I'm thinking John 10.27 was another one that we looked at. We, we looked at these things that remind us that, that Jesus holds us in his hand. Nothing can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, right? And those verses remind us we're going to go through difficult times, but we are secure in Jesus. Not in ourselves, in Jesus. And that's the same thing that the author is telling us this week. Now, the first thing that he's going to tell us is to look back to God's previous promises, right? And that's been a theme. This is kind of drawing together all these themes we've seen in the book, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these previous promises. And so the first thing that we see is, is that God's promise is an anchor for us, okay? God's promise. We'll see later in the verse, it's embodied in Jesus, but we'll just start with this promise, just simple promise. God is a promise-making God. We see in verse 13, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. It's one of my favorite verses. That gives me security, right? It's not little four-year-old Dave trying to hold this world together, but it's the God who has no one greater by whom to swear except himself. So he swears by himself. Verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now the promises again and again throughout Scripture we see given to Abraham specifically are, I will bless you, I will multiply you. And what we see, we've got to backtrack before Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis 12, we have to backtrack to Genesis 1 and 2, right? So when you backtrack to Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. What God had done is he had blessed them. He'd given them a perfect creation. He'd given them Eden, paradise. And God said, multiply it. Spread this paradise, right? And did Adam and Eve fulfill the commission that God gave them? 
No, Adam and Eve rebelled. If you know the, the story of the Bible, Adam and Eve rebelled and said, no, we'd rather be our own gods. Even though God said, you'll die without me, they said, we'd rather do life without you. So they brought death and decay and sickness into this world. And so we live in this world that's broken, right? We live in this world full of pain, full of crying, full of difficulty. But in Genesis 3, when God was judging them for their rebellion, he still gave them a promise. He gave this governing promise that governs the rest of the promises that God gives. He says, really a promise he made to the serpent, a promise he made to evil, that someday a human is going to come and crush evil. Someday a son of Eve will be born that's going to defeat you, serpent. And that's the promise that God made. And so then that promise then directs us as we see other promises that come in Scripture. In the very next chapter, we see a son come to Eve, and we think, all right, here he is, but it's Cain. And he murders his brother, so he's not the one, right? He just perpetuates the evil. And that becomes kind of a tension throughout the book of Genesis. We keep seeing these sons come, these firstborn children that we think are going to be the solution, but they're not the solution. And so we're let down again and again. And so we get to Genesis 12, where we come to this old, impotent man. And God says, I'm going to use your descendants and bless the whole world. God says, that promise I made that someday Eve was going to have a child, a descendant, I'm going to, I'm going to bless the world, Abraham, through you. Yeah, you and, and Sarah, you're old and beat up and you can't have children, you're impotent, you're barren, but I'm going to bless the world through you. And we see that God is this promise-making God and this promise-keeping God who will keep his promises to restore the world through humanity, even though humanity is not able of fulfilling that promise ourselves. And that speaks to us. That speaks to us who fail and who stumble. And he's reminding us that we should patiently wait as Abraham did. Knowing that it's not by our strength. It's not by what a stud we are. It's by us being weak and trusting in God's promises to provide above and beyond what we can provide ourselves. So God says in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you Abraham, I'm going to work through you. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22 then is where the author of the Hebrews is quoting. But God makes these promises again and again to Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants, Abraham. The son of Eve we promised before, it's going to come through you, Abraham. And the whole world will be blessed through you. These promises are made again and again. We have this picture here I've got of a little sprout coming up out of the ground. And we have this, this theme that comes up again and again in Scripture that God is going to organically restore the world, right? This idea of seeds and Jesus picks this up with the, the mustard seed, and the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It grows and it becomes bigger. Jesus says that, that a seed can't grow unless it dies and it's buried in the ground. And he says that he's like that kind of seed, that he's going to die and be thrown into the ground. We have the whole seed metaphor picked up with circumcision, that the, the tool of, of delivering seeds is purified. And we won't go into any more detail than that. But, but we have all this, this symbolism around seed and around blessing and multiplication and growth in the scriptures. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you're going to multiply and you're going to bless the world. You will have descendants. And that's picked up. Now, we have another difficulty in that the author to the Hebrews is quoting specifically from Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, we have really one of the most beautiful but also most ugly stories in the Bible. Um, in, in Genesis 22, if you remember, what does Abraham do once this promised seed finally comes? He, he has to sacrifice this son. God calls him to sacrifice 
the Son. Which is interesting that he talks about this. He references this and says that he finally obtained the promise after this whole scenario. It was like Abraham hadn't really obtained this promised son when he was born. But after he sacrificed him, or after he was willing to sacrifice him, God gave him back. Then he really received this promise, this miraculous son who would restore him. I want to spend just a minute. We're, we're short on time today, so I'm going to try to say this real fast. Um, that we have difficulties with this text, with the idea of, of God calling on Abraham to sacrifice his son. It's repulsive to us as modern people, I think. Number one, because we're individualistic, because we don't uh, understand a culture that is representational, right? And uh, there's a book by John Levinson. Tim Keller quotes this book a lot, and I've, I've read much of this book as well. But John Levinson wrote a book to try to kind of follow this whole theme of firstborn sons uh, representing the whole family. And, and if, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know this is a theme that goes throughout all of Scripture. But we need to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of a, of a Mediterranean people of an ancient people and understand this representationalism that the firstborn son stood for all the blessing and all the, the glory of what that family might be, right? And he was the one that inherited really most of the inheritance because he was going to then be the next king of the estate. He was going to be the benefactor. And if there were other children, they would have to basically live under his rule as he uh, carried on the family name. So he would kind of be like the next king or of their small kingdom or whatever it was they had to inherit. The other side, the flip side of that is he was also the one, not only that would inherit the family's riches, but he was the one that it would inherit the family's obligations. And so Abraham knew that God was calling on him to pay his obligations. Abraham understood culturally that God was calling on him to pay a debt. He didn't say, Abraham, murder your son. Walk into the next tent and stab him. But that's not what he said. He said, Abraham, sacrifice your son. If he'd said, Abraham, murder your son, he would have known that was crazy and that that wasn't really God talking to him, right? If he had known that he, if he had said, uh, Abraham, sacrifice Sarah, that wouldn't have made sense either. But this made sense in the cultural context. The firstborn son was both the inheritor of all their good, but he was also the one that had the obligation to pay their debt. So this made sense. And Hebrews 11 picks this up and says that, that Abraham knew at some level God was going to bring him back from the dead, or do something. He knew he was going to somehow make good on his promise. Abraham had finally gotten to that point where he trusted him. Because if you read the stories about Abraham, you know Abraham was just a dude like, like we are who just failed to trust God again and again, who just stumbled. Even though God made promises to him, he didn't trust him most of the time, just like, just like us. So finally, Abraham had gotten to this point where he actually trusted him. He knew that they owed this debt, and he was, Isaac was going to have to pay this debt, and he trusted him, and at the last minute, if you know the story, God provides another way. God gives a substitute, which paints the picture for us of God's willingness to pay the price that we owe. It was a righteous debt that they owed, but God paid it anyway. Just like we owe God a debt, we owe him our lives, but God pays it for us through Jesus. So the story with Abraham and Isaac and every other story in the Old Testament of sacrifice paints this picture that's only fulfilled in Jesus and shows us that God is a promise-keeping God. God promises us, I'm going to bless the world through you even though you don't deserve it and there's no way you have the ability to bless anybody. A lot of us think we can bless people on our own, but, but we can't apart from God's supernatural work in our life. And, and so my question for you is, do you understand that? 
Do you understand the promise that God is making to you? And do you have eyes that are open to see, God, how are you going to use me to bless other people? There's this word that's thrown around a lot in Christianity today called missional living. I don't know if you've ever heard this term, but, but a lot of people are encouraging Christians to live in a missional way. And when people say that, what they mean is you need to understand that you are a missionary. Missionaries are not just people that are sent to a far foreign land where they don't know the language. Missionaries are all Christians. By being inheritors of the promise, just like Abraham, God says, I'm going to bless you so that you can multiply and bless the world. We see this picked up in the Great Commission, an echoing of that early commission to Adam and Eve that they failed to carry out. They didn't spread paradise in the world. And God said, I'm going to fix that. And so he makes these covenant promises to Abraham and to David and to Moses and these other characters throughout the scriptures. And it culminates in Jesus, who is the ultimate blessing that we're all looking forward to. He's the ultimate one that we've been waiting for. So that by faith, we are sons of Abraham who are to carry out the same promise that's made to Abraham. Read Galatians, read Romans. It makes it very clear that it's not just about Abraham's physical seed. It's about Abraham's children of faith. Those of us who inherit the promises in the same way as the author's telling us. Have patience. Wait. Right? There's this contrast. The health and wealth gospel would teach that you get all the promises right now. Right? If you trust Jesus or if you give enough money, you get the free stuff next week. You get healed next week. Sometimes God does that because God's a generous God. You see Jesus explode onto the scene. People are getting healed and just grace is just flowing out of it. But those people eventually got sick and died again, right? Those people, some of them, got martyred for their faith. And the time that we live in now is, is the time of wilderness. We're looking forward to a future where all things are made right. Where we have health and wealth, where everything is perfect, where we're not sick anymore, where we're not crying anymore. When we have everything we need, that's called heaven. And by faith and patience, we have to wait to inherit fully those promises that God makes to us. But right now, you need to be looking out and saying, God, why have you sent me where you've sent me? Why have you placed me in this neighborhood? And we should know that God has sent us there because he wants to bless us and multiply us. Use us to bring his name, his glory, his gospel, his good news of who he is to other people, to other places. Using whatever gifts he's given you, whatever you're good at, spend that for his glory. Spend that to show people his love. God sent you to the neighborhood that you live in. God sent you as a missionary to the work, to the place that you work in. God sent you even to the crazy family that you were born into, right? That's hard. That's, we struggle with that sometimes, but God even sent you to that family. You are a missionary. You should see yourself the way that God sees Abraham as someone that he's going to bless so that you can bless others, so that all the nations of the world may be blessed through us. That is our job. The, the next thing that we see is the nature of this anchor. The nature of this anchor. He wants to make very clear that we don't doubt. And so he piles up all these court terms. He uses all these, these terms that, that come right out of the law court, oath and confirmation and truth and guarantee and heirs and promise. And all these, these are all court terms that show that the case is closed and God is faithful and we can trust him. And that's what he's trying to communicate to us. In, in Hebrews 6, 16, he says, For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when you've got a problem, you're not sure if you can uh, trust someone, these oaths, these 
swearings, they confirm the truth of it. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And what I love here is that God doesn't do it because he has to, right? God does it because he's gracious. Sometimes we get this point or this picture uh, that God somehow owes us or he's lonely or he's just unhappy and so he's got to go to all this trouble to solve his own problems. No, God, the Bible tells us God is, is perfectly happy in himself. God is content for all eternity in perfection. And he overflows with his grace. He overflows with his goodness to us. Listen to verse 17 again with this in mind. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He wanted to. God desired to be more convincing to us. We see this again and again, that God is a missionary God. Not only does he send us as missionaries into the world, but he's a missionary God that comes and stoops at our level. Just like when I get down to talk to my kids. Actually, they're all almost as tall as me now. But, you know, used to, when they were little, you know, you get down at their level to look them in the eyes and talk to them and help them to understand what you're trying to say. And God has done that for us. The incarnation is the most beautiful picture of that, right? That God came and, and became a man. He's saying here, though, that God desired to be more clear, more convincing, more assuring to us. He wanted to give us more assurance that we could trust him, and so he swore an oath. God didn't swear an oath because he's untrustworthy. He swore an oath to convince us, to give us more to hang on to. It says in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. We're fleeing, right? We're, bat we're battered about in this world. It's a rocky world. We're struggling. We're in pain. We are looking for refuge. And God is saying, come here. You can trust me. One unchangeable thing, God cannot lie. He we can trust him anyway without an oath. And then he adds to that, he doubles up and he says, I'll even swear an oath. I'll even have a covenant. You know, with Abraham, he, he passed through the, the covenant animals himself, and Abraham's off on the side. He shows, I'll even take this covenant oath upon myself. I'll take the covenant penalties of death upon myself. I'll go above and beyond and prove my love, prove that I can be trusted. So two unchangeable things. God's already trustworthy. And then the second thing, then he swears an oath on top of that. So that we know we can trust him. We can doubly trust him. We can be assured so that we can flee to him in a time of refuge. Just a little aside, is it wrong to take oaths? A lot of uh, denominations have, have built out, uh, based on a, a very literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, that you should never take oaths. I have a picture here uh, in the army of General Petraeus giving a reenlistment oath. Uh, when we go to court, we generally take oaths. Uh, a wedding is an oath-taking ceremony. And I would say that it's okay to do those things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was criticizing the practice of the Jews at that time to say that, you know, there are really serious oaths. If you swear by this, then you really should keep the oath. But if you just swear this way, you don't really have to keep the oath. And the Jews at that, of that time were trying to kind of divide it up. So here are the okay lies, but these lies are not so okay, and, and kind of balance it out. But Jesus' whole point is, is we should be trustworthy. We shouldn't carry oaths around in our back pocket because we're so untrustworthy and then just whip them out in a time of need. But Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be trustworthy people. Now beyond that, it's not, a, it's not bad for God to want to take an oath 
above and beyond to go ahead and show in a more trustworthy way that, that we can rely on him. Just like it's not wrong for us to, to draw a crowd and have a wedding and say, I am going to make an oath to this woman. I'm going to promise her that I will love her for a lifetime. Just like in court, it's not wrong to take an oath in court. What's wrong, what Jesus is hitting on that's wrong in the Sermon on the Mount is that we lie all the time. He's saying you shouldn't be lying so often that you have to take oaths to, to try to fix the situation and make up for it. Just be honest people. And that's what Jesus is pleading in the Sermon on the Mount. But here we see that God is already honest, and then he goes above and beyond to take the oath as well. And the, the take-home, I think, for us is that we need to remember uh, in this world, everything else is insecure. This, this anchor that we have to hold on to, it is confirming. It is unchangeable. It doesn't lie. It cannot be shaken. As I said, he's piling on term after term after term to say, this is something you can, you can wrap yourself around, you can trust in, you can rely on it as firm. Trust in this. But in this world, what, what we see, we see things that can't be trusted, right? Your parent may have let you down. Your friend may have stabbed you in the back. Your boss may have treated you unfairly. And so we want to bring that view of people and of trustworthiness into who God is. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, he is different. He cannot lie. He is reliable. He is the one thing you can trust. And if you don't take anything else away from today except for that, that's what I want you to hear this morning. That God is an anchor that you can trust in. Everything else is going to fail you. Everything else is going to be crazy in your life. But God is the one thing that you can trust in. And as you trust in Him, as you believe in Him, what's going to happen is He's going to begin to make you a trustworthy sort of person. You're going to begin to work that multiplication, that growth, that redemption into the world. He will bless you and will multiply you. And you will begin to be a faithful person, a trustworthy person that other people can trust in. You can begin to communicate God's goodness, God's trustworthiness, how He is an anchor that is unchanging. You'll begin to communicate that in your own character to other people around you. you. You won't become perfect overnight, but God will begin to change you, and your family will begin to have a different reputation. And, and this church will begin to have a different reputation. And, and the community will begin to be changed as we believe in the firm anchor that is Jesus Himself. Let's look at the last section here about the reach of the anchor. And uh, again, I'm sorry, there's a lot in here. I, I, didn't, I just didn't pace myself very well today, so I need to jump up and stretch. You can do that real quick. Um, but last point, the, the, what we see in this last point is, is the reach of the anchor. How, how far does this anchor actually reach? Uh, there's this phrase in the first century of, of an anchor in sand. And what do you think they would mean by that? An anchor in sand? They would mean... An anchor that wasn't hooked onto something secure. So you had the anchor, you had this security, but you threw it out on the sand and it just kind of drug across the sand and it slipped through. What the author is trying to say here is that no, this, this anchor is hooked into something secure, something absolute, heaven itself. And he begins to give the description here. He says, uh, kind of halfway through verse 18, he's, he's saying, for those of us who fled for refuge, we might have this strong encouragement. So again, the, the unchangeable nature of it, to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's calling us to hold on to this hope. In verse 19, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So again, this is where we see the promise he made to Abraham was not just some random thing about the, the land in Israel, but this connects all the way to this promise of who Jesus is, right? I mean, Israel's part of it, and all that history is part of it, but its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. And Jesus is the spear point of this promise, and he reaches all the way into heaven. It says, as a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, we'll get more into who Melchizedek is, but here we're, we're seeing he's a forever priest. He's a priest that hasn't just gone once a year into the temple, the way the high priest did in Israel, but he's gone in permanently. The phraseology that the author starts using later on is this once for all, right? Once for all. He uses it again and again. He starts picking it up more and more throughout this book. So our priest, Jesus, has gone into heaven, into the presence of God, and it says he's our forerunner, right? He's our scout. He's the one that we are chasing after. He's our hope that we can get into heaven as well. When he was here on earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Follow me. And here we're seeing, yeah, he's, he's gone in already. Follow him. He's our forerunner. We have to follow him into that holy place. I have a picture here of the temple at the time of the first century. Um, this is a picture of Herod's temple. So this was the temple as it was uh, in the first century, the one that Herod built that was torn down in AD 70. And what you see here in the temple complex is it was a vast complex. There are porticos all around here. Um, when we hear about the disciples meeting and having church, basically, and thousands of people coming to Christ, they were meeting out in these outdoor, basically, meeting halls around here. There's all these porticos, which were just giant stone-covered porches. So in a, in a hot place with no air conditioning... Uh, a place up on a hill where you could catch the breeze and it was cool stone and you were in the shade. That was one of the best places to meet. And that's where these people would meet around the temple. So when they talk about people meeting in the temple, they didn't just mean in the main building. They meant all around this area. I have another picture here that shows that central part in the middle. That's the holy place, right? That's the inner place. The temple design had courtyards and then another courtyard and then it had the holy place. And then within the holy place, there was the holy of holies. And that most holy place or the holy of holies was the place that the high priest only could enter. And he only entered it one day a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. Here's a little chart. We've got, again, these courtyards, courtyards, holy place, and then most holy place on the inside. I've got a, a closer up picture here. You see a priest in his funny outfit offering incense. There's a curtain here, and the curtains are all pulled back just so we can see it. But no Jew would ever see it. It was always closed off. Nobody got to get in there. We're just getting a sneak peek. You know, an artist has reproduced this for us. But, but there it is. There's the, the angels, the cherubim guarding the Ark of the Covenant where the law was. This was called his mercy seat, right? So the blood was spilt on top of the mercy seat to affect how God saw his people as he looked down at his law, which is a reflection of what Jesus did for us, right? And so here we're seeing in Hebrews that, that Jesus has reached all the way into that holy place. He's our forerunner that's gone before us so that he can bring us in to God's presence with him. Once and for all, he's made the ultimate sacrifice so we can be with him forever. Great quote I heard the other day is that we are called not just to make converts, people that say they think Jesus is cool, but disciples, people that follow Jesus. So even when you feel like you're in a wilderness, that you would follow him and be faithful and continue to cling to him. And that your hope would not be in your life being made perfect next week, 
not being in your life being fixed right now, but that future hope that we have of being in the presence of God where there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, and that you would follow your forerunner into that holy place. As we close, I just want to remind you of a time that the disciples were on a boat with Jesus. Do you remember that time that the disciples were on the boat with him and they were in a terrible storm? Remember what happened? It's in Matthew 8 and Luke 8 and then Mark 4, I think. Uh, the story is repeated. And in this story, this boat is rocking out of control, but Jesus is asleep. The disciples think they're all going to die. They're all panicking, but Jesus is, is uh, enjoying rest, just like we saw in Hebrews 4. We can, in this crazy world, we can still have rest in God. They finally wake him up, and he just stands up, and he says, be still. They, they had this human anchor within the boat that was able to calm the storm, was able to still everything. And it says the disciples were actually terrified at him when that happened. And that's the same kind of weird paradox that, that we live in that we've been seeing in Hebrews. Both that he is the strong anchor for our souls. He's the great security. He's also something that causes us to fear. We have reverence. And the author of the book is saying again and again, allow that fear to cause you to pursue him. Because he is good. Because he is gracious. Because he went before you to bring you in to God's presence. He is the one that made the ultimate sacrifice for us. He is the ultimate substitute so that we could be blessed, so that God could multiply us and give us good things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you gave your son Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to live in light of that truth. Father, I pray for those here that have previously thought that just listening was enough. We're just walking through the doors of a church or being a member somewhere. Lord, I pray for those that their hearts would be stirred, that they would see the need for the sacrifice that your son Jesus made, that you gave yourself, that we all owe the debt, just like Abraham and Isaac, but that your son paid that debt and gave his perfect life for us and died the death that we deserve to die. Father, we thank you for the new life we have in Jesus. And we pray in his name.